filibuster is supported through Patreon by listeners like you. Check us out at patreon.com slash filibuster. We also get support from the Ehrlich Law Office, discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions for the District of Columbia and Northern Virginia. They handle workplace discrimination, non-competition and non-solicitation litigation, civil rights, and a whole lot more. For a free consultation, go to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. Do you know you have a weird day when you're driving home from a lovely afternoon at a brewery and at a nice restaurant, and you come up on a scooter in front of you as you're about to pull into home, and the license plate of the scooter is just by LOL, so you're already on a good start, and the driver of said scooter has a giant dead mouse-esque panda head on while he's driving a vehicle on the Commonwealth of Virginia's roads and so i'm assuming there is in fact a dj named dead panda uh whose hashtag is by lol uh probably in in richmond he hasn't made it big time yet which is why he's still riding a moped so we we stay behind him because he's going like right towards my house and my lovely wife decides and i commend her for this she uh uh rolls down all of our windows and cranks up actual dead mouse so that it's <laughs> blaring so loudly that he must hear it because we just want him to know that this is what we think of him. And so we just blare dead mouse for the probably half a mile that we drove behind him <laughs> until we turned off into our neighborhood. And then we turned it down real fast because we did not want our actual neighbors who we live near to know that we were blaring loud music. Well, now I just have all kind. I assume that he just started like pumping his fist in the air as he if he were behind turntables. He did not react at all. Maybe he can't hear anything in the panda head. And why is he driving with it? People make bad choices. His license plate is by LOL. Lol. What, what if uh, he actually believes that Dead Mouse copied him and resents the whole thing? Hmm. Well, then I'm, then, I'm, then I'm even more glad we trolled him. I, I, going back to, to the beginning of the story, when you said on a scooter, because I live in D.C. and dockless scooters are... Oh, we have those two now. Uh, I assumed that you meant he was like on one of those like electric kick scooters, not on a, a, a Vespa-type vehicle. Right. Um, yeah. And so a guy riding on one of those scooters wearing a panda head would be um, almost fit even better. Um, somehow. I know, it would but be then he wouldn't weird. have a license plate that says, bye, lul. Yeah, I, that's, that's where I was. That's where I got lost, I, I, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United and Dead Panda podcast that that took a turn i'm adam taylor joined as always by ben bromley in richmond virginia and jason anderson who's on a beach somewhere on the atlantic seaboard we're not going to tell you where because well he won't be there anymore by the time you hear this uh we're all from black and red 
where we talk a lot about DC United, and that's what we're talking about tonight. Uh, two games this week to break down, or at least to, to talk about a loss to Philly midweek that was uh, bad in basically every way, and a win against the very, until very recently, Supporters Shield leading Atlanta United, which was really good in almost every way. We're going to talk about both of those, and we're going to, in the second segment, preview DC United's trip up to the Bronx to face NYCFC. We'll have our friend Raf Naboa E. Rivera on to help us with that one. Before we get to anything, though, Jason, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm going home after we do this show, so I'm going to abstain since I have to drive myself home. Uh, from alcohol. So I've just got a uh, pretty boring uh, Perrier bottled water. Are you taking any ferries or is it just like drive driving no. the whole way? No, uh, you can take the ferry to Delaware, uh, but then you're basically still the same amount of time distance wise from my house as you would be if you just went straight back. So I have um, taken that. I, I believe I've taken that ferry before, and it is super expensive. And we only took it so that we could go to a lavender farm. That sounds about right. Yeah, in your shoes, I would be caffeinating like crazy. Well, um, I, I, that's that's for later. Um, there's not really much left here. Um, the main group, all or everyone's gone now. I'm the last person because um, I'm going to shut the house down and and use the internet to do this show, but. Um, most of the rest of it went with, uh, people with kids to give them snacks on the way. And, um, I don't think there was actually very much soda or anything to begin with. So short of brewing a pot of coffee, but. Well, yeah, that's, that's what what I would have done. (laughs) That's what Wawa is for. There's like nine Wawa's between me and the state line. Nice. Wawa is the best. I, I, we know where Ben stands on this. Are you team Wawa or team sheets? Uh, I've never been to sheets and I don't plan on going. So there, there you are. You have your allegiance. Maryland, the University of Maryland, for the longest time, had a Wawa right next to campus. And, uh, so did William it, and Mary. When it, when it closed over a dispute over gas pumps, uh, because the shopping center it was in would not allow for gas pumps, um, it was reacted as if like a beloved figure at the school had died. Um, when it was just Wawa, it closed one location. Wawa is one of those things that I, as someone from the Midwest, we don't like, we have flying J we have, uh, pilot stations that, that, that those just that, sound made up to me. We have UDF. UDF is great. I, and also bizarre. What kind of like Wawa? My, my point is that we have, we have Hux, which is a, if I had loyalty to a gas station related convenience store, I guess Hux would be as close as I ever got to that. Um, but, but yeah, like that, that's not a thing where I come from. So I'm also from the Midwest and we, I'm also from the Midwest and we have United Dairy Farmers and United Dairy Farmers will own you. The UDF to me sounds like United Defense Front. I, I think there's some sort of a separatist group. I mean, the United Dairy Farmers will probably F you up. So, and they make a mean chocolate milkshake. I love them. It's like it's like a convenience store that instead of having a uh, hot food counter, just has an ice cream and milkshake and malt counter. All right. See if if I had come up with something like that, then I might have some loyalty. Ben, are you drinking a milkshake tonight? I'm not drinking a milkshake. 
like I said previously, I actually went out to a brewery tonight. I went to one of Richmond's uh, fancy breweries, and I brought some beer home with me. So I actually have something that's like hip and cool, uh, unlike me. I have uh, Triple Crossing Breweries, uh, The Grid, New England-style double IPA. Uh, Triple Crossing is one of Richmond's uh, most famous breweries, uh, both in town and uh, to the wider community. They've been uh, highly rated in uh, national IPA rankings. And I'm not a, like, as, as I've been exposed to more and more kinds of IPAs, I just love a good New England IPA because I'm not just I don't I don't want a a bucket full of hops just like thrown in my face and bashed over my head. I like the New England style better, and this is a really good New England uh, dipper. So yeah, it's really great. So how big is this double IPA? Um, let me take a sip. It's it's contained, but it's so fruity and wonderful that it's just like it didn't even taste like an IPA when I had my first sip it was just like tasted like a really good fruity not not quite a saison but almost in that style huh what's the ABV because doubles are usually oh yeah it's like 8.5 wow yeah Uh, I I'm making a an almost all DC Manhattan uh tonight I guess I could make some connection that DC is going to the Bronx. And so I made a Manhattan, which that's not true. I didn't, that, that wasn't my thinking at all. It just occurred to me, uh, uh, on the, the bonus episode I did on Wednesday night after the loss to Philly for our Patreon supporters. Uh, and thanks to all of them. And if you're interested, patreon.com slash filibusters, where you can go to listen to that. Uh, I, I had an all DC Negroni where I, I had a uh, green hat gin and uh, a, a new ish product called uh capital line Tiber, which is a, a take on Campari and, and then some DC made vermouth. And I, I'm using that same DC vermouth and uh one eight distillings district made rye um, and just regular Angostura bitters and made myself a nice Manhattan which nice. the weather's not really right. It's it's a little bit warm for brown liquor, but I really wanted to make this and have it. So I said, screw you weather, and went with it. And I just wanted to throw in the uh, fruits that the uh, Triple Crossing website said the grid have because they brought out exactly what I was trying to say. Uh, it's passion fruit and mango is what they describe it tasting like. And I, it, even though they don't have those juices in there, that, that's exactly what it tastes like. That's pretty cool in an IPA. All right. Go hops. What started as a very bad week with a two nothing loss to uh or with a one nothing loss to the Red Bulls last weekend and a, a two nothing loss to Philly midweek ended with a in about the best way possible, a three one win over Atlanta United on Sunday, apparently when DC and Atlanta play in 2018. The score will be three to one for somebody Uh, this time. Thankfully the, the correct United got, got the, the upper hand. Um, 
second time in in a month essentially dc united had three games in a week i think this one against atlanta was something like their fifth game in 22 days or or something ridiculous um we we thought fatigue and rotation would would be the story and i think one of them was a lot more than the other uh especially against atlanta um Against Philly, we saw no rotation. The team looked tired. Against Atlanta, we saw no rotation. The team didn't look tired, which made no sense chronologically. Jason, did we get stuck into like a time, some kind of time phenomenon, or or what? What? Explain to me what happened. Uh, well, you're seeing the difference between playing with uh, just two days between games versus playing with three days between games. Um, Against Philly, DC only had the two days between matches. Um, they came off the Red Bulls game, which was a physically demanding game. That's when you play the Red Bulls, it's always physically demanding. And then they had Monday and Tuesday, and they had to play Philly in, you know, one of the muggiest days of the season that they've had a game. Um, and it showed um, in that one, whereas with a, with the extra time, you know, with that extra, just that one extra day, um, it makes all the difference in the world. And, uh, you know, I think it also helps that in the first game, United kind of felt like they could go toe-to-toe with the Union. And I, I think they can. I just think they failed to execute. Whereas against Atlanta, they wisely said, you guys like to play this lightning bolt, 100-mile-an-hour soccer. We're not having it. We're slowing this thing down. Um, we're going to make you impatient. We're going to make you eventually force something and make a mistake. Um, and they tamped the pace of the game way down and it worked. Um, so it's not just, um, it's not, it, or there are explanations for it. Um, but that extra day of rest, I mean, it seems not like that big of a deal. It's only one day, but um, ask any of the players, ask anyone that coaches a team and they'll tell you that that extra day is huge. Ask anyone who's ever had a two day hangover. They might the not third be able to tell you better. anything at that point. <laughs> uh, one thing that struck me as well from these two games is the the winning coach had a very tailored kind of game plan to uh, foil the other team first and then win the game second. And we saw it from Jim Curtin with with Philly. They they shut down the center part of the field, didn't let United create anything in zone 14. Uh, and then DC did essentially the same thing to Atlanta. They said, um, what's their, their left back's name, McCann. Uh, they said, if you want to beat us with crosses, have at it. <laughs> we will be ready for those crosses. Um, but we're not going to let mm-hmm. you combine through the middle. We're not going to let uh, Almiron and Martinez beat us again this time. And they, they still nearly did because they are so good that they, you game plan specifically for them and they don't care. But uh, United executed on the day and, and got three points. The, the, the big headlines, the plaudits, deservedly going to Luciano Acosta and Wayne Rooney. After this one, Lucho with a brace, Senor Wayne with a goal and both assists on Lucho's goals. I guess uh, credit to Bill Hamid, who got the, the hockey assist on the opener for his uh, restart uh, free kick from his own box to find Rooney's head and uh, flick it on to Lucho for that first tally. Um, Acosta, I think, uh, 
there's little doubt he's benefited more than just about anyone else from Rooney's arrival at DC United. But um, he's, it's not all down to Wayne Rooney, right? He's, Lucho was uh, probably United's, one of United's two best players before Rooney arrived. And he's been one of United's two best players since Rooney arrived. The numbers are a lot better, but uh, Lucho was already noticeably uh, I, I'd say improved and especially in his headspace better than he was um, in years past. He's just grown. Yeah. I think that Lucho has take really taken this year to become who he is. He's taken responsibility for his play. He's not, he's still committing some fouls that you shake your head at, but not nearly as many. And he's taken, like I said, taken responsibility for himself and, is putting that onto the field of play. He's uh, creating more, he's scoring more, and he's doing better than like the $1.5, $1.4 million they signed him for. Uh, our uh, friend, our frenemy, Rob Osri, posted a nice comparison about the uh, money that DC United paid for uh, Lucho Acosta versus the money that uh, Atlanta United paid for uh, Barco. And, no, I think that was the money that Atlanta could have paid for Assad, and the money they did pay for Barco was that specific one. Because Rob Usri is the he's the biggest Yamil Assad stan in the world. Sorry okay. to interrupt. Yeah, but, uh, but the point is still. Yeah, regardless, it's just that Lucha's done really well this year, and it's great to see it, and it's great that he has really come into his own. And of course, Wayne Rooney helps, but it's not just Wayne Rooney. It's Lucho becoming uh, the player he needs to be. Like uh, a, a, a thing I threw out earlier this season is that Lucho, when Wayne Rooney came, realized he didn't have to be the man anymore, but in doing so, he has become the man. And I think that's 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 mostly on Lucho, realizing that when he stops trying to do everything, he can actually do even more. Yeah. I think that, uh, despite sounding like Eastern mysticism is correct. Um, one thing I, I noticed in this game, uh, and that I've noticed from Lucho throughout this season is that he, whether the refs are protecting him or not the way they, they should be. Um, Alan Chapman, started to do a better job and then didn't last night. Uh, but Lucho isn't bothered anymore. When, when a player kicks right. him and knocks and hacks him down, he, he gets up and, and goes about his business. Uh, he, he'll get fiery when, you know, it's unnecessarily hard or something. But we saw this when United went to, to play the galaxy, Perry kitchen from the opening whistle was just trying to get in Lucho's head slash break his ankle not in a crossover sense, but in a stomping on his ankle sense. Uh, and, and Lucho just didn't care. He just went about playing the game. Um, and in this one, even late in the second half, after he'd been kicked for well over an hour, Lucho fouls a guy and, and goes and just helps him up uh, and says, my bad, here you go, get up. Uh, not, not in a, that wasn't a foul way. He like put his hand up, my bad, I fouled him. And, and helps the guy up like he was completely totally 
in a, a space where nobody could hurt him physically or otherwise. He was just completely in control of himself in a way that um, I don't know any of us knew was possible when he first arrived at DC. Um, and so it's great to see that growth, both as a player, because he has improved his game, he has become more consistent, he has provided more in product, but also just mentally being able to own himself in a way that um, I, I think is just fantastic for him and for the team. Um, Jason, what, what, what did you think? Um, I, yeah, going back to Chapman, I mean, he gave the point at Acosta and then like look around to Atlanta. And so you can't keep fouling him. Um, but then he failed to follow up on it entirely. Um, <laughs> he made the right yeah, no. and then just stopped. He, yeah, he was, was bad. There was one moment where he gave advantage and should have come back and given a card to Atlanta for a foul on Acosta, and they he just didn't do it. Um, he uh, Acosta was fouled six times by Atlanta. DC United as a team uh, committed seven fouls. Uh, Ryan Kiefer was keeping track of that all night for us um, to to illustrate that you know as much as everyone got a laugh out of Tata Martino losing his mind on the sideline. Um, his team was the one. It wasn't like DC United went out to be physical and aggressive and just kick Atlanta into submission. Um, it was Atlanta that was out there committing the fouls. They were the ones saying, when this guy gets the ball, kick him uh, every single time, drag him down, uh, throw him to the ground, whatever. Um, Atlanta was the team that, you know, Ezekiel Barco had a meltdown over his uh, penalty in which he committed two fouls instead of just one. Um, so, and United just saw all that and they didn't get caught up in it at all, which I think is, it's part of the reason they won the game. Um, because against Atlanta, it's not just keeping things slow and, and, you know, controlling the tempo in a way that, that robs Atlanta of the kind of soccer they want to play. Um, but it's also, it's an emotional challenge because you know that a single mistake can get away from you and all of a sudden Atlanta can punish you. And, um, there's a mental challenge there that's not just about tactics and it's not just about player selection. It's about players able to stay within themselves, stay in control of what's going on. Um, and in years past, it used to be a very effective strategy um, to just go kick Acosta until he stopped paying attention to the game. Um, I, I noticed, you know, keeping track of the that same phenomenon in the Philly game because the union have made no bones about the fact that they are absolutely going to kick Acosta. Um, that goes back to, I mean, Jim Curtin as a player uh, took that a, as a, uh, a personal point of pride to just find the best player on the other team and kick him uh, over and over. And so it's, it's come through in the union's playing style. Um, I don't think uh, Lucho started to get upset at that game, but I don't think it was about, getting kicked it was that the game was not going well and he knew that that nothing was going to change it that the team was out of energy people weren't giving him the ball uh in spots that he should have been getting it and things like that um and and so there's still work to be done uh i guess as i'm bringing that up just to point out there is work to be done on his part um but atlanta went to you know the classic playbook as far as how do you get acosta off his game you go foul him over and over again. And it just, it didn't work at all. Um, and when they couldn't get a hand on him or couldn't get a foot to him, he was running in to, to score a goal. So um, I thought he responded to it. it was, you know, it's a challenging game for him. Um, more defensive running, it, running without necessarily 
a tackle at the end. It's just running to control the team's shape. That's why you saw him and Rooney more alongside each other defensively. It's um, rather than letting them play into the middle, you force them out wide even that early. Um, and then you drop off and get compact. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got Chris McCann on the ball looking to pump across into a forward who um, is, has scored a ton of headed goals, but they're usually headed goals when he's on the run. And Atlanta's whole thing is they they will play a ton of crosses, but it's crosses when someone's on the run. And United said, that's not happening tonight. You're going to play crosses to static targets uh, against d- defenders that are much taller. And then uh, Opare and Birnbaum just ate those up. So um, it starts at the front. Um, it's, you know, it was a the kind of game that maybe in the past Lucho wouldn't have accepted so much. He wouldn't have said, okay, I'm on board with this um, strategy where I'm going to have to do a lot of positional running that's not towards a, a, a tangible end goal. It's all about a long-term strategy in within the game. Um, but now he's at a place where he said, okay, you know, he signed on for uh, doing the job. And, and everyone did. Everyone that, that was on the field went out there and did – uh, a pretty remarkable job of keeping a team that is so good at just stomping the gas pedal and just saying it's not happening tonight. We're not playing this speed. Um, you guys can do whatever you want. We're not going to get into it. And, you know, outside of a few moments uh, where they turned the ball over and got hit on the counter, they did a good job of it. Um, and it, you know, it starts with Lucho, but it extends to everybody. Yeah, there were some spells in the first half in particular where I would have liked United to be on the ball more. They they couldn't hold possession. They would get a free kick and it would sail over everyone's head and go out of bounds. Or they would uh, get three or four passes and, and really kind of look like they were ready to advance up the field in not necessarily a breakneck, but at least a methodical fashion. And they would just misplace a simple pass Um to their credit, to United's credit, the those misplaced passes in the first half generally weren't into dangerous spots. Mm-hmm. And when they did make them, they they prevented Atlanta from, you know, mashing the turbo button. Right. But um which, which is good. But they were so concerned about that that they they didn't they, they made that first mistake. They they yes. didn't compound it. They they mitigated the mistake, but it, it almost seemed like that's where their focus was, was on mitigating the mistake, and then they would make the mistake as opposed to just not making it, which is really hard against Atlanta. So maybe, you know, you got to walk before you can run and I'll, I'll take three points any day. Uh, I, I do want to talk about this, this tactical approach. It was a, definitely a throwback to the RFK days under Ben Olsen, recent years of DC United four, four, two in defense. Um, no matter what Stu Holden said about the, Lucho Acosta's positioning in the attack. Uh, he was wrong. Lucho was not staying high in the attack. He was, I mean, Rooney drops deep and they interchange, but by and large, Rooney was the forward and Acosta was underneath him pretty clearly. In defense, they really were side by side, like Jason alluded to. And two banks of four underneath them, uh, especially in the second half, we saw the Rooney and Acosta sucking deeper and deeper in the defensive shape, just compacting uh, the space between the lines to almost uh, non-existence. Um, it, it, I guess you could call it a bunker. It was the first time we've really seen a bunker or anything that could be described as one from DC United this year. And uh, there, there's really one reason why it worked. One reason we're talking about three points tonight, um, despite everyone 
on the team putting in a tremendous effort and and getting the job done. Bill Hamid is the reason it really worked. He made a couple of fantastic saves. Uh, if he's not in the team of the week, uh, it'll be because of two goals that he really didn't have much to do with uh, against Philly. But uh, his performance against Atlanta was uh, was top-notch, other than... Uh, I, I guess he made a mistake early in the game, flailing at a cross that went off the post, but DC United weren't punished for it. So it doesn't count. Ha ha. Yeah. DC United uh, did a good job of playing into their strengths. Uh, uh, talking about the, the commentators, I think they did. A, they were criticizing DC United for allowing a lot of cor- of crosses to be pumped in. But as a lot of us, regular DC United watchers know that is often their plan, uh, especially with Steve Burn Stephen Burnbaum and Kofi Apari in there with Bill Hamid in there. Uh they want that. They want to be able to uh react to crosses, either head them away or catch them or anything like that. And Bill Hamid did that. He also had uh, a number of uh Bill Hamid saves uh that would have been goals if other goalkeepers had been in there. Uh, especially in the second half, he had a double save that either of those goals, either of those shots would have been goals uh, earlier in the season and could have changed the entire flow of the game. But since Bill Hamid is one of the best American goalkeepers that there is, he keeps those goals out and he keeps DC United on the road to victory. And DC United didn't, as, as we've said before, DC United didn't need a goalkeeper per se when they went out and reacquired Bill Hamid, but this is what you get Bill Hamid to do. You get him to swing games into your favor that you otherwise have no business of winning. I mean, uh, if you checked out our, our sister site, DirtySouthSoccer.com, uh, at all after the game, um, they, they had nothing but praise for Bill Hamid um, because when someone is your God, you praise them. And Bill Hamid has played like a God against Atlanta. It basically every time he's faced them, um, they they're, they're convinced that he's going to make three or four outlandish saves every game. So you have to get five or six uh, chances to get him against him to get two goals and, and have a better chance of, of victory. They, they, they're in awe of Bill Hamid. And, and so am I, uh, I, I want to talk about Stuart Holden's take on, on Bill Hamid's return because I think it's a bad one. Um, they were low-key really bad, just like that entire commentary crew, except Katie Witham. Katie Witham's great, but otherwise John Strong and Stu Holden were low-key real bad. Nah, it's, I, I don't even want to get into the, the broader, broader strokes. I, I, I like John Strong a lot most of the time, and I like Stu most of the time. Um, but this, his, Stu's take on, on Bill Hamid, I think, is... Um, it was self-contradictory. Um, he, for those of you who didn't watch on the broadcast, because maybe you were at the game, uh, he he faulted Hamid for coming back to MLS, uh, saying that Hamid went to Europe to play over there and get uh, get a stronger hold on his position with the national team. And he he comes back, and during his time away, Zach Steffen had taken over. Uh, really jumped him on the depth chart, which I think has happened. Uh, whether anyone agrees with whether it should have happened or not, uh, Stefan is ahead of Hamid right now. 
for the national team. And I think that's the point is Hamid wasn't playing. He went to a situation where he was told he would have playing time. And then the starter, I think, maybe was expected to move along and didn't. And you, if you're coming into a championship team, you're not displacing their starting goalkeeper. Like, in, unless he just has a, a, a major drop in form, most coaches are not going to bench their championship winning goalkeeper. And so he's been stuck on the bench, not playing. So he comes home, plays here on an 18-month contract. Situation changes over there. He can go back to Europe without with literally nothing else happening. He he's scheduled to go back to Europe at the end of 2019. And and Stuart Holden is kind of chiding him for giving up and coming back and taking a step backward, which number one, I'm not convinced MLS is a major step backwards from Denmark. Uh, other than eyeballs in Europe. And and number two, there's that automatic path back. The the glide path is back to Europe for Hamid right now. And he's playing games. He's getting noticed. He's having fantastic performances on national television uh, against the probably biggest, quote-unquote, team in MLS this year, um, as, certainly as far as media coverage. So I... I, I can't agree with what Stu said about Hamid. You can you can fault him for coming back or for not finding a a spot in Europe to land to try to find some playing time. Like there there are criticisms, but the way Holden framed the argument, I thought was not good and and was self defeating in a way. And despite what Alexi Lal says, this is one of his famous phrases: form isn't fallacy. Form means something, and especially for goalkeepers, you need to be playing to be considered for the national team. We saw it in Hamid's last appearance for the national team. He was rusty and it's because he wasn't playing for his, uh, for his club team. And so I don't blame anyone for to coming back and getting minutes. So just like you said, th- th- this is a ridiculous statement that uh, that's just good for talking on TV and not in, uh, not meaningful in any real world situation. Right. And when your job is to talk on TV live for hours at a time, not everything you say is going to be a gem. Um, so I, I don't want to put Stu on blast or anything. He's, I, I, I think he's a bright guy and, and uh, an improving commentator, uh, a good and improving commentator. Uh, but I, I, I disagreed with that particular take. Uh, let's talk about Wayne Rooney. We talked about Lucho. Um, before we shifted gears to the tactical approach and Bill Hamid. Uh, but Wayne Rooney just keeps uh, doing stuff and making this team better. Uh, apparently, he he had his own little halftime pep talk uh, in the locker room. He obviously uh, assisted on both of Lucho's goals, one of which was a very Alan Gordon uh, slash Jason. I think you, you put it England in ni- the 1970s uh, right. flick on header off of a direct free kick from the or, or off of a free kick from United's own end of the field um flicking it on to the the smaller on rushing attacker not that Rooney would be a big in in that era um making the uh they're converting the penalty which yay United scored a penalty that was not a sure thing uh and then the the extra little sprint right as everyone is assuming he's gassed. He, he makes a, a short, but very hard sprint 
to get to the ball and then passes it in kind of the opposite direction that he was heading. Uh, not an easy pass by any means, but just absolutely perfect pass to in front of Lucho and space behind to, to set up the, the icing goal. Um, I, I, I don't know what, what else to say about Rooney. He's, he's been worth every penny so far. Yeah. And, and this wasn't his best uh, night passing wise, but on the other hand, when you're playing this kind of this sort of strategy, you're kind of looking for that home run ball rather than, uh, you know, try. You're not trying to string thirty passes together. You're looking to get a goal out of out of uh, you know as few passes as possible because you're not seeing much of the ball. Uh, you're worried about what happens when you do turn the ball over. Um, so when you're gonna turn it over you might as well look for something deep in the other team's half so if you pull up Rooney's chalkboard there's a lot of red um a lot of longer passes that just didn't pan out but there are also those two assists um it's his it's his pass to Paul Ariola that when that uh created the penalty kick that's right um and he he showed all night that you know, his physical strength is still there and Atlanta center backs weren't able to do anything about him. So when he's going up for that header, they're throwing a body into him and he's still able to put it where he wants it for Acosta to run onto it. Um, a few other times where he's having to hold possession and just go back to goal. Um, they're trying to get physical. Atlanta's defenders love to step up high, get physical, um, make contact early and try and jar the ball loose there and force another turnover because they want to keep that, that, uh, that game going as fast as possible. And he was still strong enough to hold those challenges off and keep the ball and, and, you know, maybe not connect the next pass, but you know, he was having his say in what the next pass would be rather than having it, uh, you know, the ball poked away from him and it trickles out of bounds or whatever. Um, He's the one making the choice and, and it, doesn't always work but you know that's the kind of the game that he had to play um i am glad i I will say that people should pull up the optical board for rooney and just look at these shots because we we talked about this uh in our uh site slack channel um as to whether uh rooney would be given uh or maybe i talked about this to someone who walked into the room i think it's the latter um but whether rooney would be given a shot credit for that shot that he tried where he tried to catch brad Hussein off his line and just didn't hit it very well um so there is this uh circle from inside <laughs> dc united's half that is a shot that goes out of bounds about a foot from the corner flag which is awesome um but yeah i i mean he knew that this was a game in which it was a, you know, this kind of goes back to some, some Ben Olsen uh, talking points from the past. This was a game in which it was going to be big moments, not a constant flow of um, dangerous attacking play. And in the big moments, uh, in the moments where Atlanta was exposed, Rooney came through, Acosta came through, Paul Ariola came through with his, you know, it, it was. I, I think the timing of that play was moments after the uh, uh, broadcast had pointed out that he had really not been coming forward all that much. He'd been kind of playing it a little conservative, and he picked his moment. You know, that's part of the the job when you're do, having to play this way is um, be very judicious in picking when you're going to make your run, and then when you do make it, you've got to execute. And you know, fortunately for DC United, that's exactly what happened. 
um, when United took those risks and sent the numbers forward, they made it uh, pan out. Um, and, you know, that's probably what teams are going to have to be doing to beat Atlanta uh, all season. Uh, it's difficult to do. This is why, I mean, um, it's not like Ben Olsen discovered a brand new strategy that had never been thought of before. Teams have been trying to do this to Atlanta um, fairly regularly this year, and it just it usually doesn't work. Uh, it usually doesn't work at home. It usually doesn't work away um, because Atlanta is extremely good, but United executed the plan extremely well. Everyone was dialed in. Um, and it's kind of, you know, to link it back to the Philly game, I think the union showed um, it wasn't the same plan from the union uh, in terms of sitting deep like this, but it was, um, it did require that same level of mental buy-in and focus and, um, you know, keeping their team shape and all that stuff. And in both cases, the the team that was maybe trying uh to win the game by just surging forward, uh, found themselves frustrated and unable to solve the problem. I'm not saying that DC United should play like this all the time, but against a specific opponent, uh, it's good to see that they can still do this uh, from time to time and, and you know pull a, a page out of the 2015-2016 book, or not 2016, but the, the 2015 book. Um, that's useful. Uh, that is going to be useful because they've got a game at NYCFC this weekend. Um, and they probably will want to, you know, consider some similar ideas. Uh, one last thing I want to talk about before we, we bring in uh Raph to talk about that NYCFC game is Paul Ariola, who moved back to right back for this one uh, was interviewed both before and after the game by Katie with on the sideline um, before the game, just, super polished, like quick interview style. Um, I'm, I'm in awe of his ability to, to hit the talking points and do so without it sounding rehearsed or like talking points. Uh, but, but he also said, listen, this is a, this tonight is a night where our big players are going to show up. And then they did Rooney, Acosta, Hamid all came up really, really big and Ariola called it. Um, and then after the game, he was translating for Lucho Acosta live on national television before um, conducting his own interview or, or I guess, uh, standing for his own interview. But uh, let, let's talk about his his move to right back. Ben, I know you don't love it. Um, nope. So let's talk about that and then talk about whether it worked. I think it worked fine. I think it was OK, given the situation. I just hate it because it moves him further away from the areas of the field that he is good at. It moves him. He is a great winger. He's a, is good in central midfield, but he's good when he's up closer to the attacking third and moving him back just gets him in the attacking third less and less. And so that, that's my main issue with it. It's not, it, it has nothing to do with how good he was at it, which like I said, he, he was he was decent at it, especially for uh, somebody who hasn't played that position in a long time. But I think his run to earn the penalty is an encapsulation of if he had been further up, he would have been making runs like that much more often. And so that's why I come down on not not liking his move to right back. I I don't want him to be a full time right back. I will say that. Uh, I, I, I would much prefer him in a more advanced midfield role, but 
with Fisher apparently hurt um, with some kind of potential hamstring ailment and with Nick DeLeon still out. Uh, I, I prefer him over Vitas or Mora there um, partly Free because Jaylen. of speed. Go ahead. Free Jalen. I don't know if I want Jalen there either, just because he doesn't bring the same level of uh, going forward that Ariola obviously does. Right. I mean, my, my thing is I want a fullback there and I want the midfielder in the midfield. And that's, that's my, that's where I end up at. And obviously you think differently and I respect your viewpoint on that. <laughs> and, and likewise, um, Ariola for, for anyone at home who's shouting to the rooftops, Ariola played defense at Cholos. He, Yes and no. He played wing back in a three back system, which is different than playing full back in a four back system. Uh, there, there's more defensive responsibility, especially pinching inside. And Ariola did a great job of that uh, against Atlanta. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see him there against uh, NYC. But once there's another body there, I fully expect him to move to midfield, which I agree, Ben is is the right spot for him. But uh, I, I think he did a fantastic job and uh, wouldn't be surprised to see him there again. I, I think maybe the the reasoning that Olsen had in going that route was one of the big things, and if you listen to the players after the game, they kept talking about how important it was to be compact. And by having Segura on the left, you're guaranteed to have someone that's going to... to be comfortable playing that left wing role without necessarily being out on the touchline. So you've got that um, element of, of being compact, having someone that can win some loose balls, um, which is an underrated part of Segura's game. Um, someone who's maybe a little less of a risk taker in possession than Ariola to sort of, bat at, you know, when you're playing like this, Rooney and Acosta get to take a lot of the risks. Everyone else has to kind of support them rather than join them in taking a bunch of risks. Um, and I think Segura embraced the fact that this was a game in which his job was to be a supporting player and, and not really um, roll the dice too much. Um, so I, I think ultimately, you know, to simplify it for Olsen, you've got to look at, do I, do I prefer having Ariola playing in the midfield and bringing in Robinson or trying, you know, I, I keep hearing, um, I, this isn't you guys. This is just in general. I keep hearing people saying that Mora and and or Vitas could play right back. I don't. I don't think that we have any uh, proof of that whatsoever. I think we're just taking that as an article of faith without ever seeing it. Vitas hasn't played a second of right back in MLS. Uh, Mora allegedly played there in Costa Rica at some point, but he looks awfully one footed to me. Um, and so United, if O'Neill Fisher, you know, I think this is really a problem of. We're kind of short at right back. This is going back to the transfer window is one of the things that we talked a lot about how United should have addressed a, a few more things. And right back was one of them because we don't know daily on status going forward. Um, pulling Ariola out of the midfield does come with a consequence that Ben has, has uh, been talking about. Um, and, you know, Fisher, maybe it's just a tight hamstring. Maybe they're worried that, you know, it could become a full on strain if they throw him out there again, you know, mid this week of training, he'll be able to recuperate, 
you know, get some work done from the training staff and, and hopefully it'll be fine. Um, but yeah, um, I, I think United was in a very tight spot with regards to this game. I think they couldn't risk Fisher long-term because he is the only actual right back on the team. Um, cause even Robinson is not a right back. I think we've been over that enough times to have agreed that, um, so, so we've got one right back in, um, on the roster right now that we could we could theoretically put on the field. And I think maybe this was a long-term decision to give him, give him a game off. Um, and so you end up with a bunch of, you know, maybe this will work, maybe it won't um, kind of choices. Um, Ariola to his credit. Um, I think, I think he did a pretty solid job. Uh, I don't think he did a perfect job. I, I thought it was kind of weird that so many people nationally and, and even within DC's fan base were treating it like a referendum on whether this was Paul Ariola's future or not. This one game in which a team with only one healthy right back is resting their one healthy right back. Um, that's not a referendum to me. Uh, I think you'd need a lot more uh, data before you start even getting into that discussion. Um, so I thought the whole the whole thing was kind of overheated to me. It's just sort of this team was short some players. Uh, they had to figure out a solution. They rolled the dice on one, and because Ariola came through and Segura to maybe a lesser extent, but an important extent nonetheless, um, they both delivered on what they were supposed to be doing out there, and and it more or less worked. Um, it's great to have Ariola overlapping uh, at home. I like it especially as a late game, you know, we need to do something to jar this attack. I, I assume that we're going to see at least one more game this season with Ariola getting shifted to right back late in a game because United needs to go get a goal because we, you know, let's not get away from the standings here. We're still talking about six points back. So um, we're going to see it again um, as a in-game tactical switch, but uh, you know, I prefer it as that at this point, but I'm, I'm, I guess I'm less opposed to it than Ben as a possible long-term thing, but you know, let's slow down on saying like, well, Paul Lariola had a decent game at right back that one time. So therefore he's the national team's right back forever. That's case closed. Um, let's slow down a little bit. Well, I mean, that, that just reminds me of the, what? Two thirds, three quarters of a season that Andy Nahar played. Uh, right back for the team. I feel like that's what most people are reaching back to. But since then, he's not played right back really. He's been a winger for Anderlecht, and he hasn't made that transition. So Paul Ariola is not going to make that transition either, for the most part. It, it's just Nick DeLeon and that's made the transition to fullback from midfield, and it's because. He is a he is the Swiss Army knife player, and he's. I feel like in this day and age of MLS, he's kind of unique in that in that he can play uh, five different positions and is equally good at all of them. That doesn't happen anymore, and it's not going to happen with Paul Lariola either. He'll play there occasionally as an emergency substitute, but he's a winger. I mean, yeah. even even his even his minutes as a central midfielder are fleeting he's a winger and his long-term career for club and country is going to be a winger i i could see him having more 
playing time centrally, depending on the the formation that's used. If there's there's a call for an attacking, very attacking kind of number eight, or at least a more advanced number eight, he he fits the bill really well. And um, I, we've seen that because he's he. I would say he's been better as a number eight this year than he's been on on the wing. Um, but I think even Ben Olsen uh, basically said this was an emergency thing and praised Ariola for his willingness to slide back into the fullback spot on on an emergency basis because he know Ariola wants to be more advanced, wants to be involved in the attack more. Um, and being a fullback is a lot of thankless work for the occasional moment of glory. And you're going to have a lot of blame pinned on you if anything goes wrong. Um, not as much as if you're a center back, but uh, especially when you're a stand-in fullback, it's not necessarily what you, uh, not, not a role you're used to. Um, and and so uh, Olsen praised Ariola for his willingness and eagerness to just grab the assignment that he was given, um, which is a great thing. That's what you want from everyone on your team is just buying in and, and we're seeing great levels of buy-in right now uh, with DC United. And hopefully that leads to another win, uh, a, a second road win on the year this Wednesday night in New York city. And we'll be right back to talk about that trip. Stick around. It's filibuster. Hey Ben, um, you wouldn't say this is a hostile work environment, would you? You can tell uh- me. Depends. I mean, well, I should ask you. I mean, is are goats hostile? Uh, I think goats are are hostile. I think that they are secretly trying to take over the world. But but if this were a hostile work environment, or if I were trying to steal your wages, or or do something else oh, nefarious, you in a, I'm really not. Uh, but in a workplace environment, you know who to call, right? Because you live in the District of Columbia or Northern Virginia. I, I do. It's the Ehrlich Law Office. It is the Ehrlich Law Office. Uh, they they offer discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions in Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia, which means I can totally create a hostile work environment for Jason. Except, no, he, they, they wouldn't want me to say that. That would be bad. I do not want to create a hostile work environment for anyone. But Jason couldn't call them nonetheless because he lives in Maryland. Sorry, Jason. I'll fight my way through this. All right. <laughs> Uh, they handle workplace discrimination, wage theft, uh, non-compete clauses, and uh, non-solicitation litigation. They handle civil rights and government takings and disability and education law. They handle a lot of things. And if you are interested in a free consultation, head to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. Back to filibuster the black and red united podcast dc united has uh just one chance this year to get their first win at yankee stadium and it'll be saturday afternoon they had north to visit nycfc for an oddly specific 4 55 p.m kickoff time watch it on univision and twitter our good friend rafnaboa e rivera from hudsonriverblue.com is here to help us preview this game Roth, welcome back to the show Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, it's our pleasure, as always. What are you drinking tonight? I am drinking that New York City staple seltzer. Okay. What, which and variety? No. No alcohol. I don't drink, so... Right, right, right. But what, what, which, which variety of seltzer? 
Like who who who, oh, who produced it? Mango. Ah, I'm, I'm, okay. Yeah, I'm going a little tropical here to close out the summer, so I'm having a little mango seltzer. Cool. Okay. You know, when I, when I hear about New York City classic and and water, you think tap water. So I, oh, I didn't sure. know if you had like a soda stream going or or something. No, 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 no. I mean, I have one, but I'm not that fancy today. <laughs> you don't bring it with you when you when you go to the shore. Yeah, no. Uh, let, let's talk about your, your boys. Uh, the pigeons are, are reeling a little bit. Um, one win since yeah. the end of July. They've fallen out of the shield mm-hmm. race. What's what's wrong? Mm-hmm. What's going on? Um, so there's a number of different things that are going on. And, and they all add up to bad news for New York City. The first thing is they really desperately miss Yanhel Herrera in the midfield. Yanhel um, basically provided the bite in the midfield that allowed New York City to control the state of affairs there. And so what happened with Yanhel was he provides that defensive bite. And so he allows, you know, Alexander Ring to go ahead and roam around the midfield and sort of clean up you know, whatever defensive lapses take place. And then he also lets, more importantly, Maxi Morales really roam at will and sort of link up play between the defense and the midfield and the forward line. So he's gone. That means that you have Ebenezer Afori, for the most part, taking his role. And Ebenezer is a good player, but he's nowhere near in the same league as Yanhel in terms of being able to go ahead and dictate the pace of play in the midfield. So now what you have to take place is um, Alexander Rigg trying to play basically those two sort of roles, his and Yanhel Herrera's in his absence. And then you've got Maxi Morales sort of roaming around like he will. Uh, but you really shouldn't be able to do that with a missing Yanhel Herrera. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that you had a coaching change. You had Patrick mm-hmm. Vieira going over to Nice, and you had Dome Torrent coming in. And, you know, bless his heart, Dome's trying what he, what he can do, but you're talking about a guy who's been basically a career assistant for his entire time as, uh, as a football coach. So, you know, making the jump from being that sort of career assistant to being – head guy in charge is you know that's a categorical jump and it's really tough to do in a league that you're not particularly used to you're not particularly familiar with in terms of mls and a league that can be really weird and really is sort of almost the equivalent of participating in a european continental competition in the sense that you're doing all this traveling and you're changing climates um, and you don't have the wherewithals to just, you know, buy the players that you need to buy. You know, you've got to deal with all these, you know, different player acquisition mechanisms. Um, and Torrent's not really the sort of guy who's going to be doing a lot of that in terms of hands-on. Um, that's going to be more Claudio Reyna, obviously. Um, but it's still a big chunk of stuff to get your arms around. Um, and so those are the two big things that have really contributed to the downturn. Uh, in New York City's fortunes. So Patrick Vieira famously had a way he wanted to play with NYCFC almost, except for Mm -hmm. a couple of times in the playoffs, almost dogmatic. 
uh, devotion to playing out of the back and and keeping the ball yep. on the ground. Uh, Torrent has been there um, just short, just shy of three months uh, in the position mm-hmm. now. Um, how how's his approach to the game? They're broadly similar. I mean, and they're broadly similar because that's sort of the coaching philosophy that's coming from the top in terms of pep. So, you know, City are going to go ahead and play from the back. They're going to go ahead. Uh, they didn't as much under Patrick Vieira. They are they're trying to, and they would if Herrera was healthy. They'd be playing more of a double pivot in the midfield um, under Torrent and under um, and under Pep. You know, in terms of the in terms of Manchester City. Um, so that'd be the the big difference between the two. I mean, you're still going to see City sort of playing the ball from the back, trying to possess the ball, trying to work the ball forward, trying to you know basically frustrate teams with uh, with possession and waiting for them to make a mistake. So, Raph, uh, David Villa has obviously been the the key player for uh, NYCFC over the past couple of years, but mm-hmm. it doesn't seem... Uh, how is he doing this year, and what is his goal-scoring situation meant to, for the team uh, in 2018? So, the thing with, the thing with athletes is that, try as you might, Father Time is always going to win that battle. And I think this is a year where you're seeing Father Time basically win that battle against David Villa. Um, he's had a few, you know, sort of nagging injuries throughout the course of the year, um, mostly with his knees. Um, and they've really, and those injuries have sort of really robbed him of playing time um, and of a lot of the mobility that he enjoyed, particularly um, in 2016 and 2017, last year. Um, so he's not the leading goal scorer this year. The leading goal scorer is Ismail Tajuri Shradi. Um, and he's been a revelation. He's been, you know, basically scoring from, from the right wing. And, you know, at one point, I think he had scored like a goal a game. Um, and so his, his scoring rate has sort of dropped off slightly um, as the team's fortunes have gone south. But, you know, he's definitely been the go-to scorer for the team this year. I think this is probably going to be the last season where we see David Villa wearing a New York City jersey. Um, and so you kind of sort of want to send them off in style, you know, where whether that's by winning the Shield, winning MLS Cup, what have you. Do you think they they waited too long to try and find a, a not a replacement, because you can't replace David Villa, but try to find somebody to supplement him? Um, I think there's a little bit of truth to that. I think, I think the issue, the thing with, with Villa is that, um, in an ideal situation, you basically want to replace like for like. So you basically want to go ahead and sort of like usher, uh, David, you know, off into the sunset, so to speak, and then bring in another, you know, DP class striker to sort of replace right. him. You know, David Villa was 32, so you'd probably be looking at somebody in that 29 to 32 age range um, who's a free agent who can definitely bang the ball in and that sort of thing. Um, so where guys like Ismail Tijuri, Shradi come in, where somebody like, say, a Valentin Castellanos 
to a far lesser degree, you know, Jesus Medina, for instance, come in. It's sort of like taking the scoring load um, off of Villa's shoulders and sort of spreading it around the team. Because um, there was like a time, there was a moment, I think, in 20, you know, towards the end of like 2016, beginning of 2017, where, you know, Villa had just like a ridiculous percentage of the team's goals. And if you got rid of Villa, I mean, like that was it. Nobody else was scoring. You know, it was like, like at one point it was like David Villa had something like, you know, 16, 17 goals and the next highest score was like Tommy McNamara with like seven. And I know we talked a little bit about uh, Patrick Vieira already, but Mm -hmm. as an NYCFC fan, and I don't know if you're a fan of Man City or not, but as an NYCFC fan, how did you feel about him? leaving the team mid-season and what has it meant for the team and is this a sustainable future for the team to be uh, keying up new coaches and then seeing them leave even if it's not for uh, teams in in that system? I mean, I, I think... I think fundamentally what, what you come to terms with is that, you know, things are incredibly fluid in soccer. And so, um, you know, unless you're, we're, we're no longer in, in a time where you have these sort of like insane coaching reigns. Like, you know, you had like Arsenal. Well, we Bender. are. <laughs> yeah. Well, sure. But, <laughs> but I mean, you know, but the thing of it is, is that, you know, coaching instability is a thing that happens in soccer. Yeah. Um, and MLS has been like really sort of immune to that um, for the balance of its existence. I mean, like you see some guys who you would think by their lack of success um, would be getting the boot. Um, and yet, you know, teams are incredibly patient with them. And that, you know, that could be a good thing. That could be a bad thing. Um you know, you could talk to people at Philadelphia about whether or not Chip Curtin should still be the coach. Um, you can certainly talk to, you know, folks who, you know, who had to withstand the tenures of like Frank Klopas and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I see New York City sort of adopting a very sort of like European stance towards it. Like, you know, this guy's going to go ahead and manage the team. And if a better opportunity comes along, which it did for Patrick um, in terms of coaching Nice, then, you know, he'd be silly not to take that opportunity. I mean, you'd have loved for him to like manage the team through the end of the season. Um, But the reality is that, you know, the kind of jobs that would be, that would be available to a guy like Patrick Vieira in January are not necessarily going to be like the best or most attractive situations, you know, like yeah. the kind of jobs that would be available to him in January would be like him going and trying to manage a relegation, you know, tire fire in the premier league or a relegation tire fire in league gun. And like, really, you know, why do you go ahead and just- yeah, it didn't work well for Bob Bradley. Right. Exactly. You know? So, I mean, like, why does he want to go ahead and inflict that upon himself? You know, when he can go, like this isn't the French Riviera, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> like he's managing a you know a team full of like young players. Like this isn't his wheelhouse. Um. 
so, you know, whether or not he does well in that job or not, I mean, you know, we'll see. But, like, I don't begrudge him that the least bit. Um, where, you know, being somebody who follows New York City FC, um, you definitely would have liked to um, to see some, like, nothing against, you know, Dominic Tourette. Um, but, you know, you definitely would like to, to see the New York City position uh, get to a point where they're actually interviewing people that uh, maybe are not within, like, the actual New York, the actual like city football group family, but are actually like interviewing like proven managers, proven coaches and, and that sort of thing. Like I'd be fascinated to see New York city be managed by somebody of like Tata Martino's stature, you know? And if New York city wasn't so tied in with CFG, who knows what kind of interest, you know, that position would attract. Um, but it is what it is, you know, and so you get somebody like Domit Torrent and, you know, you sort of hope that, um, that they know what they're doing and that they have, you know, a set of ideas that they could, you know, implement successfully. Um, and we'll see if that happens. I mean, I'm not, I'll be the first to say that I'm not entirely convinced by the guy. Um, I think, uh, I think this is a really tough job. I think MLS is an incredibly tough league, you know, for it not being, um, you know, say like a top league in the world. It's an incredibly tough league. And, you know, the three of us, you know, all of us here know that. Um, you know, you saw, for, you know, just this past Sunday, you saw DC United absolutely demolish Atlanta United. I mean, like Atlanta United is a stud team and New York City went for them like a knife going through butter on a 99 degree day. Uh, Rafa, when I when I look at this current NYCFC team, it, it seems like a lot of players have they, there wasn't a lot of movement there. There are some unfamiliar names, uh, but at the same time, it seemed like most of the team outside of you mentioned Tajuri Shradi. Um, most of those guys were there last year, most of the key players anyway. Um, but someone that I've noticed, um, and we, I mean, for our purposes, we kind of hoped that the rumor connecting him to moving to MLS was actually about DC United. It ended up being, uh, NYCFC, uh, Anton Timmer, Tinnerholm came from Sweden. He had been defender of the year there. Um, how has he done this season? Fantastic. Um, Turnholm's been a stud at right back um, for New York City FC, I, and, and I and I think and I think honestly, you know, like for, for twenty, you know, twenty, you know, twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, you know, that was just a position that was painful for the team. Like at one point, they literally signed a guy off the street, R.J. Allen, to be the right back. And like RJ Allen, like went right into the lineup. Like that's how barren that position was um, for New York City FC. And like in Tinnerholms just basically nailed it down um, to the point where they basically signed you know this guy from um, you know in a sign and trade. They basically acquired um, Abdul Saad from Sporting KC, and they basically sent him to um, to the USL because he wasn't getting any minutes. 
Um, you know, looking at, you know, we've mentioned earlier the, the form, the, the pigeons are on right now just hasn't been very good for them at all. It, they've really fallen off from even, you know, when Toronto took over, he still won for four of it or five of his first six. I, I mean, um, but since then it's, it's one in six and it's, it seems like some of the teams that they're struggling against have been, you know, Seattle's been very good at passing the ball since they've begun their um, annual late season improvement um, Philly has uh-huh. been a very good possession team. Columbus, um, over the weekend is another team known for their, um, their ability to keep the ball. Is that, uh, is that a trend at this point or is that just sort of a coincidence as to who they've been struggling against? I think it's a little bit of both. And I think, look, I think part of the issue is, I mean, this goes back to the absence of Jan Herrera, right? Like mm-hmm. it's really hard to replace a player like that. Um, and so I was a little bit surprised because um, you have like the secondary transfer window in MLS. And so the secondary transfer window, just like, you know, the January window in Europe, um, this is where you have like a second sort of like chance to like fix any deficiencies that you may have, um, you know, any sort of shortcomings that have sort of cropped up over the first few months of the season. And so I figured that that would be like a, optimum time for them to address the sort of like glaring need like to be it was a glaring need and like to mm. other people who watch this team it's a glaring need at midfield um because this team is like overloaded with like attacking midfielders um and, and not so much with like defensive or holding midfielders like the folks that they have are like you know Kwame Awua like he's a dude he's a body and he's somebody who can play but he's like not a great player right um you know, Ebenezer Afori, you know, plays in the Bundesliga, but he's, you know, clearly not in the same level and doesn't play, you know, his defensive midfield role in the same way that, you know, Herrera does, right? Um, in terms of getting stuck in, um, and I hate that phrase, but, you know, really being aggressive, you know, grabbing hold of the ball and that sort of stuff. Um, like, I remember that one, one thing that really stood out to me about Herrera was the fact that at one point he was both the guy who had the most fouls in MLS and also the most fouled player in the league, like at the same time. So that gives you an idea of like how he plays. Um, and, and it's really just abundantly clear that the team misses that. Um, and that's just, you know, made New York city FC way more, sort of like one or two dimensional as opposed to like three or four dimensional in terms of how they approach the game and how they take the game to opponents. Um, So they really didn't do that over the win over the secondary transfer window. They picked up, you know, Valentin Castellanos, which, okay, fine. Now you have like, you know, your 17th, like right winger or, you know, Mm -hmm. wing player, right. Which, okay. I'm sure that, good from a depth perspective and from like a youth perspective. Um, but, you know, then they picked like Eloy Amagat, you know, who basically, you know, played once and, um, you know, in one of the derbies and then just got sent off and suspended. So, you know, he has, he's been like a total like non-factor. Um, they didn't, you know, move like you've got somebody, you've got assets that you can move. You've got money that you can spend. Um, because they still haven't spent the money that they've gotten for like Jack Harrison. So I'm guessing that they're saving that for like whoever replaces Via, but um, like they could have traded 
within the league, somebody like, you know, Tommy McNamara, who's never playing and who's clearly not in the long-term plans for the team. Um, you know, they could have moved him, you know, to another team. They could have picked up at the, you know, a defensive midfielder um, with that sort of same profile. And I'm just really surprised that they did. And that's really gone to the heart of their misfortunes lately. Um, so, you know, they're able to play a lot better at home. And I think that's going to be a challenge for DCU, um, you know, that they're playing at home. I think, you know, the road game, you know, later in the season is going to be a totally different story for NYCFC. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of this, you know, speaking of the game for, for DC, uh, yeah. DC's got a full week. NYCFC's got uh, the revs on Wednesday. Um, and yep. with this, this run of form where they're, you know, trying to get back to where they were before, do you think that the emphasis is just on, uh, is it going to be maybe more on the Wednesday game than on the weekend? Or is it just uh, at this point, just, any any game has to be something where they sort some things out. I, I think the latter. I think mm. the latter. I think I think there's just like this real restlessness um, in the fan base because you know this is a fan base that ex- you got to understand. Like this was supposed to be the year where it all sort of came together, and I know that sounds like that sounds like really arrogant for like a really young team um, in terms of NYCFC to think that. But this was the year that, like, you know, the team was supposed to win some kind of trophy, whether that was a shield, whether that was MLS Cup, whether that was, like, entry into the CONCACAF Champions League, what have you. Um, and, like, like, it's clear now that that's in danger of not happening. Like, there are a lot of people, if you talk to fans, who are, like, absolutely convinced that, you know, they may, that New York City FC may not win that you know, knockout round game. And like, mm-hmm. that's not entirely out of the, out of the picture. Like, even if you're hosting that game at home, that's, you know, win or go home. And like, you know, as the saying goes, the ball is around, the game's 90 minutes long, you know, you surrender. It's not like New York city has a sparkling playoff record to keep in mind. This is not a team that's done well in the playoffs. Um, so there's a lot of tension in the fan base. And I think there's a lot of tension in, in the locker room. Um, you know, you've got Alexander Ring talking about like how the team needs to like basically sack up in so many words to, you know, do what they need to do in order to win some games. So this is where, incidentally, you know, we talk about Torrent. This is where we find out if Torrent is like an actual, honest to goodness, like, you know, guy who can manage a team or if he's basically a career assistant who's ill suited for that role. And for me, that's going to be really fascinating to find out because it's also going to tell us, you know, just how serious CFGR about turning this team into a flagship team in the league. Are they just, you know, are they comfortable with this team being basically mediocre at best um, and being sort of like a playoff contender, but not really doing anything in the league? Um, Or is this team, you know, really going to be like a flagship team you know, for MLS. And that's really going to say a lot um, about how CFG approached the league, about how this team approaches the league, and how we go from there. It just occurred to me that with the the results from from this past week, 
Uh, NYCFC now look like they're going to be third, play that knockout round game. Philadelphia probably has a stranglehold on the fifth spot, meaning DC United are gunning for the sixth spot now and only the sixth spot. Uh, It'll take a lot of work to catch Philly. So this, this weekend's game suddenly becomes uh, potentially a, a, a preview. Um, uh, of yep. uh, an even more important game down the line, depending on how this goes. So that that could be interesting. Stepping back just for a second, um, huh? Audi Field recently opened, and so I'm obsessed with everyone else's uh, stadium searches. Every other MLS team that doesn't have a permanent home, <laughs> I want to see get into a permanent home. Uh, NYCFC playing at Yankee Stadium. Uh, that there have been renderings and proposals floated recently i'm just curious what the the latest is on on that particular front to to quote john patrickoff the team president there's nothing new to report i mean the the search continues um and the search is going to continue because uh, look as much as nycfc fans hate for me to say it like the best near-term shot for a stadium was going to be uh the Belmont sort of stadium proposal, um, you know, that was like on the edge of like um, Nassau County, you know, slash Queens. Um, if you remember, that was like, that was ex- basically the the crazy Cosmos stadium proposal um, mm-hmm. that got floated around years ago. Basically, NYCFC took over the bidding from that after the Cosmos basically went away. Um, ultimately, that stadium site went to the New York Islanders um, because they had the inside track on, uh, on that it, stadium site. Yeah, it that, sounded like it was always going to go to the Islanders. Right. But I mean, beyond that, there's just like, like New York city is just like a really tough place. As everybody pointed out at the beginning, you know, in 2013, 2014, 2015, um, New York city is just a really, really tough place to build a stadium in. Like people go ahead and point to like, um, uh, the Willits Point area, but the thing that people don't understand about that Willits Point area is that it is totally undeveloped, meaning there are, there's no city infrastructure in that area. There's no water piping, there's no water lines, no sewage lines, nothing in that area. So that all has to basically be built in before you can even entertain the idea of having you know a 30,000-seat stadium in that area. Beyond that, you're looking at you know, places like Hudson Yards, um, you know, places by like near Yankee Stadium and that sort of thing. And at that point, you start, you know, dealing with um, NIMBYism and YIMBYism and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that's really hindered the stadium search is sort of like the unwillingness of CFG to um, to sort of deal with the local political verities here. Like, you're going to have to like, come in, you know, kiss some hands, you know, kiss some rings, um, you know, bend some knees and, you know, pay your proper respects, you know, to people that you may not necessarily feel like you need to pay respects to, but you're going to have to do that. Um, like they're going to have, like we're in a time and place where, you know, the tax breaks are really not going to be forthcoming for a soccer stadium, you know, for a team that, you know, that is basically like the fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh, you know, entertainment destination for people, you know, like reality, like that's just where New York city FC 
stacks up on the on the sporting totem pole, so to speak. So, you know, ultimately, I think if you're going to see a stadium here, like CFG are going to have to spend like a ton of money that they may not necessarily want to spend um, in order to make that happen. And so for me, um, what that boils down to is that you're basically going to see New York City FC playing soccer at Yankee Stadium for the foreseeable future, which I think a lot of people were predicting was going to be the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the question mark was whether the Yankees were going to allow that to continue. I think is uh, yeah, at least my memory think, of it. Oh, totally. Um, and I think there's signs that the Yankees are just not really particularly copacetic with that. Um, like there's like the impression that I get is that the Yankees would like for this to basically come to some kind of conclusion sooner rather than later. And I don't blame them in the least bit. Um, so I think, you know, the idea that there's going to be like this downtown stadium where like there's going to be MLS play, and I just don't know how realistic that is. How about a Upper floating stadium? stadium? Yeah, floating stadium in the middle of the Hudson or the East River. No, hover stadium over Central Park. Oh, okay, God, that's yes, totally. If you're gonna, if if we're gonna go pie in the sky, let's go literally in the sky for this. Yeah, totally. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, focusing back on on this weekend, if you were uh, in Ben Olson's. Uh, prep room in, in his technical area across from Dominic Torrent. How would you be game planning against the Pigeons? So, one of the things that I would be, um, one of the things that really strikes me about this team, about NYCFC lately, um, especially as they've hit the skids, is that I'm going to pause here for a second. So, you guys remember watching the USM, the U.S. men's national team um, under Klinsman? And do you remember? Yeah, yeah. So I've mostly blocked remember, it out. Were, okay. But do you remember, like, you know, there'd be, like, clearly, like, Klinsman would come up with some kind of, like, set of ideas for the game, right? Some kind of sort of planning and whatever, to a degree that Klinsman would do that, right? Um, and then, like, you would clearly see... Um, the team try to sort of execute that. And then like partway through the game, the team would just basically say like, you know what? Hell with it. Like, I don't really know what's going on here. Like we have to like win this game or like get a result in this game. Yeah. Michael Bradley would be, Michael Bradley would be like, this is Michael Bradley would be like, this is dumb. We're doing something that actually works. Right. Exactly. So that really sort of came into it's a real crystalline resolution watching um, NYCFC play Columbus this past weekend. Like you could clearly see a point um, like late in the first half, you know, early in the second half where like the team was just basically like, we need to like come up with a plan, like on the fly. And like, that's rarely successful. Like, unless one team is, like, clearly better than the other team, like, that's just really rarely successful um, to do on the fly, especially on the road. And one of the things that strikes me is that you see the players on the field sort of do that, which really speaks volumes to, you know, how much 
sort of attention they're paying to what Tourette says and does in the training ground um, during the week. So that's something I would keep an eye on. Um, the other, the flip side of that is that a lot of times Tourette will come in with like a set of plans for like the game and then like partway through the game, you know, he's clearly responding to those plans working or not working as, as they're supposed to and just basically go into sort of like chaos mode. Um, and so you really saw that during the Hudson River Derby, the very last one where New York City went to like nine men, um, which was a whole other story. We're not going to get into that. Um, I can't fault someone for going to chaos mode when you're down a couple of men. Right, right. But they clearly went to like chaos mode. They, they were like at one point they were just like lumping balls over the top, um, you know, because you know that was basically like what was going to work. Um, and like I don't blame them for doing that, but it was clearly something that's alien to the sort of NYCFC DNA. You could totally see that the Red Bulls were just like very confused about like, wait, what? They're, right. They're Isn't that where the goal like, came from too? One. Yeah, totally. That's totally where the goal came from. Like they had like no idea how to react. It was almost like, like if Tourette had like instructed the players to like pick up the ball and run with it, you know, <laughs> a la football or rugby, like the Red Bulls players are just like, wait, what's going on? Like, you know? So one thing, if I were Ben Olsen, like I would really focus on, not so much like the first 15, 20, 25 minutes of a game. I would really focus on that part, those parts of the game where like Torrent clearly throws the plan out <laughs> and just chaos reigns. And so how do you respond to that? Um, and how do you play, you know, how do you plan for that? I don't know that you can plan for that, but you know, how do you respond to that? How do you drill for that? Um, I think, you know, New York City have not lost a game at home. Um, this entire season. I think if that, if it's going to happen, it's probably going to happen on Saturday, you know, coming off of the short week. Um, I don't know that there's going to be a lot of rotation just because I don't think the bodies are there um, to do the rotation that they would want to do. Um, and so I, and I think this New York city are just ripe for being, you know, Delta defeat at home. Like, this is not a team that's in a good mental space right now. And I I really do think that, you know, if it's a scrappy game, if it's an ugly game, you know, DC scores a goal early, all of a sudden you're playing from behind, you know, everybody's frustrated, you know, that just plays into DC's hands. Well, now you got my hopes up, Raph. Thanks. Th- thanks for that. Now I'm the... DC United has never won a game at Yankee Stadium, and uh, I'm well I'm well aware of that. I just think that <laughs> if, if, if it's going to happen, like these are like the optimum conditions that you would draw up. You know, one win in your last six, coming off of like a short week, you know, against a a Revolution team that's you know you know they're gonna play one way. You know, they're either gonna go ahead and like crap the bed playing. Um, because they're demoralized or they're going to be up for it, you know, because, you know, Brad Friedel has challenged their manhood, so to speak. So, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, well, hopefully uh, DC United can live up to your expectations and, and our hopes um, and, and right. not the opposite. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just saying like, this is not a bad DC United team either. Like, 
you know, like we saw, you know, what they could do to good teams at home, you know? So, yeah, and like, the issue has been taking it on the road. Right. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't rule it out. All right, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you online? Not a problem. So, you know, you can find Hudson River Blue online at HudsonRiverBlue.com. And you can find us on Twitter at, at Hudson River Blue. All right. Find us at Black and Red U on, on Twitter at blackandredunited.com. Uh, for the podcast, we are at filibuster DCU on Twitter and uh, patreon.com slash filibuster. If you want to support us financially, send your emails to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. I swear we read every single one, even the junk mail from uh, various PR agents. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Mostly, please tell a friend about the show. When you're at the tailgate next weekend, when you are on the bus up to the Bronx, tell a friend about the show. That's the best way to to spread the word about us. For Jason and Ben, I'm thanking Roth one more time. I'm Adam, and we'll talk at you again real soon. Say goodbye, Jason. Uh, I guess I have to leave the beach. I'd rather not.